Hello, and welcome to another episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I'm Betty. I'm a flight attendant for a major airline, and I'm also an avid traveler. So I bring you stories from work on the airplane, from the pilots who fly those airplanes, and from traveling around the world. This episode is called It's the Bomb. And this episode is going to deal with some scary stories, some that are scary yet funny, and some that are actually scary. There's a story of a captain having a heart attack in flight over the Pacific Ocean. That's a scary story. And yet we have other stories that are funny, more funny than scary. And then at the end of the episode, there's a story that I think is the bomb. (laughs) So let's get started with a funny, scary story. Catch me looking down on you But you'll find the better place So bombs away, bombs away My friend will fight it till the end The L-1011s are one of the few airplanes that actually had a downstairs to it. And these little galley elevators would run down there. And, you know, of course, the flight attendants, they have all the carts down there, and they do a lot of the cooking and stuff down there. Well, that's also where you had in the L-1011, you know, once they started to get a little bit old, the, uh, the air conditioning valves are back there just behind that lower galley on the lower level. And, and you know, the, the preferred technique for freeing up a stuck valve was to take one of the metal coffee cans to go down into the lower galley, go into that that mid-electronics compartment there, pick up the floor panels, find where the valve was, and just beat the crap out of it with one of these coffee pots. And that would free the valve. And you could tell, you could hear the air whooshing and all that stuff. So, I mean, you'd have to do this, I mean, you know, almost every second or third flight, you'd have to go down there and be clanging around on these things. And you could always tell in the L-1011s that this was the case because the coffee pots all looked like golf balls. So... I get, you know, I get a, a stuck valve. I can't get down there. You know, I'm thinking, I, I can't get the thing to work, so i got to go down and beat on the thing. And I tell the guys, okay, you know, I'll, I'll be back in a little bit. So I'm in the elevator. I go down. I come out of there. And the most horrifying sight I have ever seen in my life. Now, imagine this lower galley with all of these carts that actually the carts themselves are kind of like the, the ovens are right next to the carts. So it gets hot down there. And it was a very senior position in the lower galley because you didn't have to interact with the passengers. So it was always some senior mama down there. I come off that elevator, I step out of the door, and I see this senior mama, and she had to be 60 if she was a day. And she is standing there in her freaking nylons and her bra. And she (laughs) she has stripped down, her dress is hanging on the hook. She's down there in her nylons and her bra with a cigarette. And, I mean, we're in no smoking time, but everybody smokes in the lower galley anyway, so that was no big thing. But I came off that elevator, and, I mean, I feared for my life at that point. I had no idea what was in store for me because it didn't dawn on me immediately that she was naked because she was hot. (laughs) I thought the guys had told her that I was coming downstairs, and she figured it was my turn. Now, what did she do? Nothing. She looked at me like, you know, hey, how you doing? You here for the air conditioning? <laughs> so so I kind of sit there for a second, you know, trying to regain my composure, looking for the coffee pot. 
I go back there and beat on the valve. Get in the elevator, just Is kind she of. Still as, has her dress on. Oh yeah, yeah. She's she's still like that. I try and get in the elevator without, w- without just you know searing my retinas any more than they've already experienced, <laughs> and get in the thing and try and get out of there just as fast as I can. flight engineer on 727 and we were saying hello to people as they came into the airplane and one woman in particular walked on who I can uh, only describe as uh, resembling what Willie Nelson's twin sister would look like if there was (laughs) such a person. She was dressed in about 40 layers of clothes and around the outside layer she had one of those weightlifters uh, like wide leather kidney support belts she made a rude comment to the co-pilot which should have been the first clue that she was a little wacky but uh, we just kind of laughed it off and she went to the back and we were in uh, New York's LaGuardia airport and we pushed back from the gate and we were about number 20 or 30 in line for takeoff and at the point where we were cleared into position to hold at the moment that that radio call came from the tower the intercom chime sounded from the back and the flight attendant said we've got somebody in the bathroom we can't take off yet and the captain was one step ahead of everybody else and he said is it the woman that walked on and said something to the co-pilot and the flight attendant said yeah as a matter of fact it is takeoff but eventually we took off we were bound for Atlanta Georgia and about the time intercom chime goes off and the flight attendant says now she is standing up in the seat and throwing peanuts at us whenever we get close to her (laughs) and demanding to be served drinks and we've already told her we're not going to give her any more alcohol so, at that point, you know, the captain says, well, look, just tell her you're not going to give her anything. Tell her to sit down and shut up and that I've had enough of her. So they try that. And now she starts demanding to talk personally to the captain. The flight attendant says the captain is much too busy to come back here and talk to you. You know, you're just going to have to do what he says. Well, she had about three briefcases with her. And she opened up one of the briefcases, which was visibly loaded with batteries and wires and clocks, and looked at the flight attendant and said, Well, he will, by God, want to talk to me now. That'll get your attention. So she calls up, tells us that. The captain starts looking around in the cockpit for the most junior guy which is me and he says do you mind going back and talking to this lady so I go back and she is literally in the last row of seats in the 727 in coach and the guys in first class when I walk by are are 
pounding one fist into their open palm and looking at me and saying, if you need any help, I can help. I can help. Pick me. <laughs> I mean, the people in the front of the airplane had had enough of this woman, and she was all the way in the back. So I go back. She is, of course, standing up in the seat. I get her down in the seat and look into the one of, of three briefcases that was still open. And there were... There were batteries and wires and alarm clocks everywhere in this briefcase and I get her down and I tell her you know I don't want to hear any any more from her and and she's not to get up out of the seat and she's suddenly very docile and she's gonna do everything we say so I've convinced myself that I've solved the problem go back up in the cockpit the door is literally still open I still have the doorknob in my hand the captain turns around to say is this going to work? You know, is she going to be all right? And I opened my mouth to say, yeah, I think she's going to be all right. And I didn't get a chance to because the flight attendant was right behind me in the cockpit already saying, you know what, she's up again. The captain looks at the co-pilot and says, get me a clearance to Washington. We're going to land and put her off. I'm, I'm done with her. So... They start working a clearance to uh, Dulles, and the captain says, you know what, let's, let's do this one better. Let's go to National, and we'll just, we'll just hand her right off to the FBI. They're, you know, they're located about a mile away. So we get this clearance to National, and we land, and to this day, I have no idea where we went on the field at National. It was it was uh, pitch dark. They had us so far out, you know, in the boonies of that airport because they thought there was a bomb on board. Yeah, so it was away from the terminal. So if the thing blows up, they don't want it to yeah. blow up where they can get hurt. So we're all by ourselves out here in the, in the darkness, and ground control says they want us to open the back door where there's air stairs and... You can get onto the airplane from from the back. And when I opened the door, I went to the back of the airplane to open the door, and there was a small army back there. We had no idea they were back there. There must have been 15 or 20 vehicles back there, guys with guns and dogs. And I'm, I, I opened the, the door and let the stairs down, and there were two guys standing at the bottom ready to rush up. And about halfway up, they say, where is she sitting? And by the time they had finished walking up the steps, it was there was no need to to tell them. She was loudly announcing where she was sitting. So they they go over to escort her off the the airplane. And I heard a noise down at the bottom, so I looked down to to see who who else was coming up. And in the time it took me to move my head away from those two guys that came on first and down to the bottom of the steps and back to them. They had picked this woman up. One of them had her by the shoulders, and one of them had her by the feet. And they carried her down the steps, and her head hit every step. (laughs) Now, I don't know what it was that she said to those two guys, but it pissed them off. Up and put you down right in your 
first leg of the trip. Now, I'm the co-pilot, uh, and the captain's name was, his first name was Jack. I won't say his last name. Um, it's not really important, but um, great guy, and uh, had a fun leg over and uh, laid over in Honolulu the first day. That night, we're to fly the trip back to San Francisco. Right. And uh, we're on the bus headed back to the airport, and I asked him, I said, so how was your day? You know, I went down jogging down to the park, and went shopping and over to the food court and you know how was your day he said well it wasn't that good he said I didn't I didn't feel very good all day long I said oh yeah how's that so well my like my chest was just so sore all day so I just felt like I was having a hard time breathing you know and just very constricted I said Jack are you are you okay because I mean like what you're describing to me sounds like the symptoms I'm not an expert here but uh, I was a medic in the army you know in my youth and that sounds like a symptom of a heart attack. Are you sure you're okay to fly tonight? He said, oh yeah. I said, okay, well if you feel okay, great, but I'm telling you, if you if you don't feel okay now, it'd be a great time to, to say something, you know. He said, no, no, I feel fine. I said, okay, so we go out to the airplane, get on the airplane, do all the checklists, crank up the engines, take off. We're climbing out of Honolulu. We're about, you know, now it's what, uh, 3,000 miles or so between from Honolulu to the west coast. It's five hours, five and a half hours. I mean, it's the largest, longest overwater span with no land uh, that commercial aviation flies anywhere in the world. I mean, it's a, it's a very long overwater uh, flight with no place to land. So I had thought earlier, you know, like just what I was saying, if, if he didn't feel good, like we should have dealt with it at that end. But anyhow, so we get on the airplane, we climb out, and we're out about, you know, an hour or so, and I'm uh, we're just kind of checking uh, the panels and the instruments and looking at the maps and stuff. And I look over at him, and sweat is just pouring off of his forehead. And his shirt is now, I could, I could see when we were on the bus earlier, I mean, he was a little moist, you know, if I could say that. But this wasn't moist. I mean, he was just, water was pouring out of his body. His shirt was soaking wet almost. And uh, I turned him and said, Jack, are you okay? And he had, had, had sort of doubled up. And he said, well, not really. He said, you know, that chest thing I was telling you about, he said, I think it's back. I said, Jack, are you, you know, you might be having a heart attack. He said, no, no, no. It's said, oh, oh, it's not a heart attack. It's, I turned around. I turned to the engineer behind me. I said, do me a favor. Get the A-line, the senior flight attendant, up here, like, right away. Now, this is before 9-11 when, you know, uh, it was easy for flight crew members to, to get in and out of the cockpit. And uh, she came. She came up fairly quickly. I said, "Joanne, you know what? We've got a problem. I think the captain." And I didn't want to say it. She was sort of bent over towards, with her ear down next to me. Of course, he was oblivious to it all. He was in so much pain now that he was pretty much doubled up over the yoke. And I turned to her and I said, "You know what? I think I, I, I couldn't be sure about this, but I think the guy is having a heart attack. Go to the back, like right now, and see if you can find a doctor on board." So she did. She left the cockpit right away, turned around, knocked or rang the bell, came up a couple of minutes later. She said, actually, as it happens, we have a heart specialist on board. And I said, you know, get him up here, quick. Now, nowadays, nobody gets into the cockpit without, you know, uh, some sort of high-level security clearance from the Pentagon. But back then, of course, that, you know, it was allowable to let somebody like that the doctor comes up, he was an, and he immediately came up and uh, I said, you know, I, I think the captain here is having 
a heart problem. I'm, you know, could you? He put a, a stethoscope on him, and he leaned over to me quietly and just said, "He's having a heart attack right now. How quick can we land?" And I said, "Well, you know what? I hate to tell you this, but we're two and a half hours. Whether we go back to Honolulu or turn around and continue on to San Francisco, it's two and a half hours either way." And he said. All I can tell you is he said, we better get it on the ground quick because he may not have long to live. It's fairly serious. So, now the captain is gone. Uh, The cardiologist said, I need to get him out of the seat. I need to get him back into business class where I can watch him, where I can monitor him. I need to get him laid down. So they pulled him out of the seat and took him back into business class and laid him out on the floor in business class. And I turned to the engineer, and I, uh, of course, I'm in the right seat of the airplane. The captain's seat now is vacant. Uh, well, it was nice. It was actually nice having an extra guy. But the first thing I did is turn to the engineer and say, uh, John, how long has it been since you've flown an airplane? He said, oh, man, I don't know. Because he'd been an engineer for uh, four or five years. He said, I don't know. Gee, probably like four or five years. I said, well, you know what? Uh, you're you're going to be in the captain's seat because it's just you and me. Uh, so set your panel up for landing and get ready. Uh, how, when, did, when was the last time you looked at an approach plate or actually thought you might have to fly the airplane? Because if something happens to me in the next two hours, uh, you will be the guy. And he sort of looked at me with his eyes of, like as big as silver dollars, like, oh God. <laughs> Please don't, please don't let the, anything happen to the co-pilot because I'd really hate it now. As it turns out, as bad luck would have it, it's raining uh, in San Francisco. It's as bad as it can be. It's like about a half a mile visibility. Essentially, wanting to make certain that there were the fewest number of chances for a mistake to be made program the autopilot to fly the airplane in and land by itself, leaving me to be the monitor because I imagined that the engineer who hadn't flown for however long it had been um, would be in better shape if something happened to just let the airplane auto land. So anyhow, we broke out at about a, at, uh, at about 100 feet, 150 feet, right at minimums um, in heavy, heavy rain. You know, it was whatever it was, 4 o'clock in the morning, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the airplane, I mean, the end of the story, I imagine, is not the complete end, but the airplane stopped, basically landed right in the touchdown zone, right on the center, lo- center line, just like the technology is, is supposed to provide for. I mean, the airplane did a spectacular job, basically, of flying itself. Um, you know, we had the auto brakes. The, the brakes that react automatically as soon as the airplane touches ground spool up to a level four, so the airplane stopped very, very quickly. So the technology for the airplane itself, even though it's a fairly old airplane, an L-1011, built sometime in the early 1970s, uh, was perfect. Uh, we're surrounded by fire engines and uh, uh, ambulances. and. Uh, How was the captain? Well, the... The funny thing was, the captain by then had sat up in the seat and said, you know, I think I'm going to be okay. I'm like, I don't really need to go to the hospital. I just, you know, I just need like a day or so. And the cardiologist said, no, 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 no. Okay, you are going to the hospital right now. And um, the end of the story, which was fairly 
fairly sad was that that uh, within about 48 hours the guy passed away. Yeah, he he he, he actually had the heart attack and died in route. So it's. That's maybe as nervous as I've ever been on an airplane, only because you fly and fly and fly, and even though you have thousands of hours, you're the co-pilot, and when something really serious happens, we always turn to the left and say, look at the captain and say, okay, you know, big guy, you're the guy that's making all the money, now what do we do? Yeah, that seat was empty. And when you turn and there's nobody there, but, but for me personally... That the marvel of modern day commercial aviation is, and I've, I've flown for 40 years, and I would just I would tell you this, or people that are interested in aviation, especially people that are getting nervous about flying, um, 40 years of doing this, I've never had an engine failure. You know, I've had a couple of minor hydraulic malfunctions. I've maybe blown out a couple of tires, but the technology is so spectacular. It, it, it is. I never get over. The night that the captain died, I mean, I felt, I loved it that there was the technology available, so I wasn't, in a sense, now that I think of it, wasn't really on my own. I mean, I had the, the airplane and the computer systems built into it. And it was an old plane. And it was an old plane. And, and, and very old by, it was like sort of antique by modern day standards, so. But otherwise, you know what, this is like, the challenge is for me, nowadays, is to keep my co-pilot awake because I'm so boring. Wake up. Back in 1998 or 99, I don't recall exactly the date, we were flying from um, Los Angeles to Mexico City so there was, there was my, there were five of us, and one of the person that I remember is Marlene, which is this pretty. Remember her? She's really pretty. Really pretty. There's beautiful red lips, beautiful big eyes. So anyway, so we start boarding. So at that time they they had me boarding on the outside. Remember that where you had to go outside and board. So I went outside and I started boarding. I was like, hi, welcome aboard, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. And all of a sudden this lady comes and she says, excuse me. I said, what? She said, I have to, I have to let you know this. He says, you see that gentleman sitting there? So he hadn't even boarded. So he said, you see that guy there? And I said, yeah. He goes, he's, he's really, really strange. He's going to be on your flight. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. We take all kinds of passengers. <laughs> so that should have been my first, first sign, right? So... They bore, they lock the door, the flight, the, flight, the flight takes off, and at that time the airline had cut all, like a lot of service to Mexico, they used to just give a little snack in the back, and people were upset because they weren't getting the hot meals and all that, so every time I would go by this guy, he hated me, he hated me, every time I would go by, he would give me a look like, and I'm like, what is wrong with this guy, and I was like, oh my god, I must be the guy that the lady was talking about. So everything was kind of smooth until, until we started descending into Mexico City. So we started descending, descending. So this guy gets up and, and runs from economy, runs to first class to go to the first class bathroom. So the OBL looks at him and says, You! Go to the back! Go to the back! Well, the guy didn't speak any English, right? So he goes to the back and he's mad. He's pissed. He's really, really mad. And he's like, 
and he says, this airplane, in Spanish, this airplane is not landing. I was like, oh, yeah, sir, it's, we're landing about 15 minutes. You know, you got, you got to take your seat. It's like, no, this airplane is not landing because I have a, a bomb. And I'm like, no, no, not the bomb, not the B word, please. <laughs> I knew he was, he was kind of crazy, and I, I knew he wasn't 99% sure that he was just making that thing up. So I'm like, oh, God, I have to go through the whole procedure of the bomb. So, so they called the captain and said, listen, captain, there's this lunatic here. He, and he's crazy. He says he has a bomb. I really don't think he has a bomb, but he says he does, and he doesn't want this airplane to land. So the captain says, otherwise I'll explode the bomb. So, so I called the captain, and I said, listen, this guy's crazy. I don't think he's really serious about it, but he said he has a bomb. So the, guy, the captain says, we're going to have to treat it as a, as a hijacking. He says, you tell that gentleman, we're running out of gas, fuel, and we're landing, whether he likes it or not, whether, whether he wants us to land at the airport or we're landing on the, on the, on the mountains. Some go, I'm like, oh, God. I was like, sir? Excuse <laughs> um, me. me. Um, no more gas. <laughs> we're running out of gas. <laughs> I said, there's no, no fuel, so we're going to crash in the mountain. I said, so that guy goes, he goes, okay, we can land at the airport, but I don't want any doors open. So then I thought about it. It's like, Marlene, where's Marlene? She can do something. She can do something about it. She's pretty. She can. <laughs> so we're like, where's Marlene? Look for Marlene. Marlene was nowhere to be found. Where's Marlene? She was in first class, locked for about 15 minutes. And I'm like, Marlene! Open up, Marlene! She's like, what? Open up! She, she's like, opens the door. She goes, what? I said, listen, there we have a hijack. This guy's like, shut up. And she closes the door. <laughs> Sounds like Marlene. <laughs> so said, Marlene, I'm serious. Open the door. Open the door. She's like, what? I said, listen, this, guy, this is a situation. This guy, he's a little lunatic. He's kind of crazy. He doesn't want us to land. But now we're landing because we're running out of fuel. So I told her the whole situation. She goes, okay. So she goes over and she goes, Senor, what seems to be the problem? <laughs> so the guy automatically like falls in love with her. She's like, he's like, oh, you know, these people, they treat me bad and, and like blah, blah, blah. And she's like, and we're landing and there, she's in the galley. And I said, Marlene, we're landing. Hold on to something because we're landing. So she holds on to the galley. It's not short. We, we're like landing. We're like, and the guy like tumbles. <laughs> but he's okay, right? So we land and we're like, oh God, what do we do now? So then the pilot takes us way out, not, not near the terminal, like way out of the terminal in case he, we explode. So, so then we're there and we're like, what do we do now? So people are looking at us like, what the heck is going on? The passengers had no idea what was going on. So then this guy gets gets up and he says, my people, right in the middle of the aisle, looking, my people, don't you worry, everything is fine, everything is under control. And I'm like, so the women and, and children start crying. They're like, oh. 
we're like, what do we do now? So then I call the, I call the captain and he says, he says, listen, you, where's the bag right now? He's like, he has it next to him. He sometimes leave it on, leaves it on the seat. He said, you listen, keep an eye on the bag. And when you get a chance, you grab that bag. And bring it over to the cockpit. We'll, we'll open the window from the cockpit and we'll throw it out. So coordinate So coordinate with the OBL so you guys can accomplish this. So grab uh, a, a bag that might have a bomb in it. That might have a bomb on it, right. Because so, he had it in his hand and said, this is where the bomb is. So then at that point when he says, my people, and starts doing all these hand gestures... He leaves the bag on the seat, and he stands on the other seat, and he's going like this. So at that time, I felt like the Pink Panther. I'm like, this is my chance. I'm like, so I'm like, what really slow? I'm like, and then he would like look to me, like, oh look, I was like. So then I grab the bag and I start running to first class and then I, I call the OBL and I said, I got the bomb open. So she gets on the phone and says, he has the bomb, open the door, open the door. So they open the door to the cockpit. So I'm like, I got the bomb. And so they grab the bag. I hear the window roll out and then they throw it out and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like holding my my head thinking there's going to be an explosion. Like... <laughs> so, of course, there was no explosion, right? So, we're still wondering whether there was anything in it. Well, we were there like for... We were there like to 2 o'clock in the morning, and they still haven't resolved the problem. And finally, they were... all still on the plane. Well, they didn't want to do that because they didn't want to upset the, 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 the passengers. So, what ended up happening was they got a really cute and a really really pretty lady dressed as a, as a civilian and she was the actual police but she boarded from the back of the airplane where the guy didn't notice so he just walked like a regular passenger and as soon as they got to him just grabbed him from the back and and cuffed him and took him out but you know you were really brave to take that in case it was a bomb well i was told i was told to do that you know that's why i get paid the big bucks Well, I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I actually recently had my own little scary story. I was interviewed by the BBC World Service. And the reason why that was scary is because they're heard by like 140 million people worldwide. So for me and my little show, that was scary. And uh, they actually called me the world's first flight attendant podcaster. And I was so excited about that because Lord knows, I never thought I'd be called the world's first anything, let alone the world's first flight attendant podcaster. That's actually a little scary. So I hope you have a non-scary few weeks and that you'll join me again next time for another episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. Bye. Yeah.
Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.